0: Yes, one can take a whole handful of crisp dollar bills and practically water your mouth over. But this is this kind of a person who is confused, like a padlock dog who salivates on the wrong bell.
1: <laughs> hey, folks! Welcome again to Basis Point. Uh, still don't have a tagline. I only got one submission, and it was by my little brother, and it sucked. Uh, He gave me his permission to make fun of him on the podcast about how bad it was. Um, He sent it to me in a text, but I deleted it. Um, But it was so, so bad. It was literally like the most generic sounding opening for a podcast. It was like, hi, welcome to Basis Point. I'm Brendan Harris. And that was pretty much it. The offer's still open. If you send a good opening statement to basispointpodcast at gmail.com, and I like it and I use it, um, you may qualify yourself for a bag of chocolate gold coins that I went over all the details about last episode. Um, And even if it sucks, I won't make fun of you. The only person I'd make fun of publicly is, you know, my brother, and I only did it after I got his permission. So I love you, buddy. Okay, this week, um, I'm actually going to go over two chapters. The first one's really short, and both of them, I feel like I can summarize them pretty simply. So chapter three is the name of the chapter is that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And he talks about a few different things, but the main idea is that transportation of goods, And the cost of transportation of goods plays a major role in the economy. He even goes so far to say that the reason civilizations are built around bodies of water, um, like along coastlines and rivers, is that it costs so much less per pound of goods distributed to do that on water, like on a barge or a ship than it is to move it on land. He gives the example that a wagon uh, is drawn... You usually have two operators, two horses, and the wagon. And all of those uh, means incur cost. You have to pay the wagon drivers, you have to pay for the maintenance of the wagon, and uh, you have to feed the horses and everything. And you can carry about four tons of goods. Then he says, if you move merch on a ship... You've got more guys, you've got six or eight men to man uh, um, good watercraft, and you have to maintain that, which is, it's way more expensive to, like, repair a boat than it is to repair a wagon. But with those eight guys and a little bit higher maintenance costs, you can carry 200 tons of cargo. And so that's the equivalent of, like, 50 wagons, And that's a really big deal because the cost to move things is borne by the people who either buy or sell goods that are transported in some way by a third party. And this idea that the cost and means of transportation really shapes society and shapes civilizations could be highlighted again in the next few years as autonomous vehicle technology totally transforms our transportation industry. In fact, there is a candidate for president in 2020, his name's Andrew Yang, and he is running primarily uh, on the platform that self-driving cars and other automation technology is going to put more American workers out of jobs than has ever happened in history, And that it's going to create such a problem in our economy that we're going to need safety nets and political mechanisms to handle the burden on the economy that um, all those unemployed workers, especially truckers, are going to pose. So I'll let him explain. This is a um, conversation he had with Joe Rogan on his podcast. Here we go.
0: Only 13% of truckers are unionized. Um, so 87 percent are like Dennis, where they're small independent firms. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them actually uh, bought or leased their own trucks. Uh, so they took out tens of thousands of dollars in the equivalent of a mortgage to get this truck. And so if they have to compete against a robot truck that doesn't stop, mm-hmm. that's like, you know, that's existential level stuff. Yeah And right now, truck drivers have time use regulations where they cannot drive more than 14 hours a day. Uh, so, you can't, you literally cannot compete. Right. Because the robot truck's just going to keep going hour 15, 16, 17, yeah. et cetera. So, these guys make, some of them make really good money. Like, some of them make $70,000, dollars $80,000. It's one of the higher paying jobs for uh, men without a you know, college degree. And so, if you look at what they're facing, it's not so crazy that they're like, hey, you need to make the robots illegal. Because for them, what is the next best economic alternative if the robot trucks take over that job? Like, where are they going to go from? Yeah, it's not crazy for them, but it's a crazy idea to tell a company that they can't do something that's more efficient, safer, and probably economically more viable. Oh, yeah. Again, the savings from automating truck driving are estimated to be $168 billion per year. And not just labor savings, but also equipment utilization because the trucks never stop. Fuel efficiency because the trucks can daisy chain together, so there's less wind resistance, mm-hmm. fewer accidents. Because right now, truck accidents kill about four thousand people a year, so you'd probably save lives. There's a very, very powerful argument for the fact that we should be trying to automate this stuff. Yeah, but on the other side, you have literally three and a half million truckers who rely upon this for their livelihoods to support their family, and there's going to be a lot of passion, a lot of resistance to this. Anyone who thinks the truck drivers are just going to shrug and be like, all right, I guess I had a good run. I'm just going to go home and figure it out. That's not going to be their response. Right. It's going to be much more likely that they say, you need to make these robot trucks illegal, or they're just going to park their trucks across the highway, get their guns out, because a lot of these guys are ex-military, and just be like, hey, like, I'm not moving my truck until uh, you know, I get my job back. And th- there'll be a lot of truckers in the same situation.
1: It's interesting that in the 1700s, Adam Smith made the argument that transportation technology and the costs associated with it transform and kind of define civilizations. And that's just being reaffirmed with the reality um, that Yang highlights here, that a lot of people are involved in the transportation sector and changes to the cost of performing that work are going to have huge impacts at like the civilizational level. So it's really interesting. Uh, And that's kind of it for chapter three. Chapter four is about money. It's called Of the Origin and Use of Money. Here's kind of the problem that Smith outlines in this chapter. Say you are a blacksmith and you have like a little small farm you live on with your family. You're really good at making nails, and so you have, like, a ton of nails. And your farm is not super diverse since you spend all your time making nails. Your kids are the ones running the farm. They kind of suck. So all you really grow are potatoes. And your kids are sick of eating potatoes. Your wife is sick of eating potatoes. Um, So you go to some other guy in your village who uh, is a hunter, and he butchers meat. And you want to exchange some of your nails for his meat. Problem is, he already built his house. He's already built his butcher shop. He doesn't need any more nails. So you ask him what he needs. And he says, well, I need some like soapstone or whatever to sharpen my knives. So now you got to go find someone who has surplus soapstone and who also needs nails. So you go to that person. You say, hey... You know, nails. They're like, no, I need something else. So it's not like an endless chain of trade. Eventually, you'll find the right balance. You know, you'll accumulate things with your surplus goods. But in a barter economy, it's really hard for interest to align between parties that are just trading goods. And this is where money is so cool, because you have a material that is assigned a value. In this chapter, Smith explains the history of money, and says at some point, uh, some Roman guy or whatever just said, "You know what? Let's just say like an ounce of copper is worth twenty bushels of wheat or whatever," and that became the basis that established a third-party value for copper, which then could be traded between parties for anything. You know, I could give you money for a shoulder portion of beef and that's money that somebody gave me for my nails who really needed them and it just makes the economy run more fluidly and better. And Smith talks about how, uh, you know, originally, literally the material based on its quality and weight held a value and people would just carry like bits of gold and silver and copper around with them And anytime you wanted to trade for something, there'd be an established price. You'd have to, like, shave off that much gold from your bar or your little nugget you carried around. And so every time you had a trade, you had to have weights. And you had to have somebody who knew about the... Could verify the quality of the material you were giving them and all that kind of stuff. And it was a pain in the butt. And so that started the mints that were run by governments... Where you know you'd have a shop that would um, weigh out and certify the quality of metals and then it would print them with like information on the back and front of the coin that showed what quality material it was and how much it weighed, and then people didn't have to you know bring out the scales every time they wanted to buy their groceries or whatever so and that's kind of like it's not so many steps to where our economy is today. Money is assigned a value and it becomes practically useful in trade. I want to insert one more bit of commentary here. This is by a human historian, I mean kind of like an anthropologist or historian, his name's Yuval Noah Harari, and he brings up an interesting point about money. I'd never really thought of money in this way before, so here goes.
2: The real secret of success of our species is that we alone can talk about things that don't exist at all, anywhere, except in our own imagination, in the stories that we invented. All the other animals, they too communicate, but they communicate information about things that really exist. You can never convince a chimpanzee to do something, say to give you a banana, by promising that chimpanzee that after you die, you know what happens? You will go to chimpanzee heaven, and there you will receive lots and lots of bananas for your good deeds. No chimpanzee will ever be convinced by such a story to do anything. Only us, only homo sapiens. The easiest example to give is of course religion, but it's not just religion. It's the same with our legal system, with our political system, with our economic system. Money is also just a story. Chimpanzees and dolphins and wolves, none of them uses money. None of them, they can exchange things. I give you a banana, you give me coconut. But the idea of money, this is something unique to humans because, again, it is based on a story about something that exists only in our imagination. We take, say, a piece of paper or a piece of gold, which is worth nothing. You can't do anything with gold. You can't eat it, you can't drink it, you can't wear it, you can't even make weapons out of it because it's too soft. So you take something without any inherent value and you tell a story, look, this piece of worthless metal or this piece of colorful paper, it is worth 10 bananas. And if enough people believe that story Then it becomes an extremely effective story. Millions of strangers are willing to do amazing things and sometimes terrible things just for these colorful pieces of paper. This is the power of the human imagination. So we see then that Homo sapiens, in contrast to all the other animals in the world, lives in a dual reality. Other animals, they live inside an objective reality We humans also live in this reality. We also encounter trees and lions and rivers and mountains, but we also have another reality. In addition to this objective reality, we also live inside a fictional reality, a reality that we invented that exists only in our imagination. A reality that contains things like nations, which are just the stories that we invented, which contains money, which is populated by gods, which includes things like human rights, which again, it's our invention. And what is amazing about history is not only that humans inhabit this dual reality, the the layer of objective reality and on it another layer of fictional reality. What is really amazing is that over time, fictional reality has become more and more powerful until we reach the situation today when the very survival of trees and rivers and lions and chimpanzees depends on the imaginary stories that Homo sapiens has invented. We are living inside the dreams of mythical entities like the European Union, and like Google, and like the dollar, which exist nowhere except in these fictional stories. And you can test yourself, you can check for yourself, try to see what are you thinking about, what are you worried about during your day-to-day life. Many people find that they think very little about real things like trees and rivers and lions, and most of the day they are constantly preoccupied by these fictional inventions like money and like nations and like gods and corporations and things like that.
1: The implications of the ideas in chapters three and four of The Wealth of Nations make me feel something. I think it's summarized well in this quote by David Lynch. He said, This world is wild at heart and weird on top. And that's how I feel. See you next time as we get into chapter five.
0: But money and our psychological attitude to money... Uh is a major obstacle to a proper development of technology enabling it to do what it is supposed to do that is to save labor and to produce goods services and so
2: on adequately